electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. This make or break hour begins with this resilient stock market. How even one of the world's greatest investors says he's a bit surprised at just how well equities have done this year. We'll get to those comments and others from Citadel's Ken Griffin in just a moment. In the meantime, here's your scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. A nice broad move today. There it is, all three of the major averages plus the Russell. Seeing nice gains today, even after that hotter-than-expected PPI report this morning. Retail sales coming in better than expected today as well, which is likely one of the reasons interest rates have been creeping up across the curve throughout the day. There's your picture, and it's green across the board. J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs helping lead the Dow higher today, along with several big industrial stocks like Caterpillar and Dow. We are closely watching the Nasdaq today as well. Arms highly anticipated IPO off and running at a Big way. Priced at 51, open just above 56, and there you go. It's above 58, and that's near 15%. The gain on today, we'll discuss whether the biggest IPO of the year is a sign the market is finally thawing out. It does take us to our talk of the tape today. This market's unique ability to brush off almost anything thrown its way and how long that can really last. Let's ask Gabriela Santos, J.P. Morgan Asset Management's global market strategist and CNBC contributor Joe Terranova of Virtus Investment Partners, both, as you can see, with me here at Post 9. Good to see all of you. Uh, it is a resilient market, is it not, Gabriela? It is quite resilient. I mean, we know through the end of May, it really was about the AI turbocharge of a handful of companies. Since May, we've had more participation from cyclicals as the data has shifted the narrative much more towards a soft landing. It has been surprising that even though we've seen a backup in real rates, close to 200 basis points, we haven't seen a bigger correction in long duration stocks. We've seen some, but we haven't seen as big of a correction as we would have expected. Expected, given naturally would lead to more of a focus on valuations. And we know uh, the largest of those stocks are quite extended when it comes to valuations. Yeah, I mean, it's been a surprise to many, you know, not least of which uh, Ken Griffin of Citadel, of course, who was on the network earlier today. Here's Ken on this resiliency we've seen in the market. It's been a, been a really good year for the market, particularly with the backdrop of higher real interest rates. So if you look at both the yield on the 10-year bond and, more importantly, the real yield, for example, in the five-year TIPS bonds, we've seen, a, again, an increase in real rates and nominal rates, and yet the stock market's been resilient. So that's a, that's a really interesting year to see the resiliency of our stock market against this backdrop that would usually be very challenging for equities. All right. So that's Ken Griffin. So, Joe, why hasn't it been more challenging? So you always want to put a bull market in context and understand the fundamental catalyst behind it. I want to go back to August 18th. The S&P was 43.35. We're up 4% since then. Let's remind ourselves what this bull market has had to overcome since August 18th. We heard about at the end of August that NVIDIA and the price action that day was indicative of an inflection point for the market. 
The price of oil on August 24th was $77.50. It's above $90 today. We got through unemployment. We got through CPI. We got through retail, retail sales. And we are coming up towards the end of the quarter ahead of an earnings reporting season. Normally, what happens? We see earning es earnings estimates lowered towards the end of the quarter ahead of the earnings. In fact, what's happened? Earnings estimates for technology has moved higher by 7%. The revisions are actually positive. So you tell me, if you are bearish and you are of the belief that this market is going to roll over significantly, it's going to give in to the overwhelming force from Treasury yields, what in fact is going to be the catalyst? Because we've overcome all the catalysts that were supposed to in a seasonally weak period well, I think that's defeat why, that bull trap. But I, I think that's why Ken Griffin, among others, are somewhat surprised, Gabriella, as to why we've been able to overcome all, all of that. The question I asked Joe, I'll ask you, is why? Why has this market been able to look past, you know, most of what's come its way? And, and, and that's why we sit here, you know, 45, north of 4,500 on the, on the S&P 500. I do think this earnings piece is so key because we talked about for the first six months of the year how it was all about multiple expansion, multiple expansion. What's happened since the end of May is not just that the macro data has been better than expected, but also earnings have been better than expected. And so since then, we've had an upward revision in next 12 month earnings of four percentage points. So it's more about favorable fundamentals rather than just pure valuations alone. With that said, we do think it is surprising that valuations, quality, dividends, your traditional factors that would do well when you have these positive high real rates haven't been doing as well. And that's something we think will change. So we're bullish on the market. It's just how you actually invest based on a more positive macro and earnings view that we think is more nuanced. And Joe, it's not like Mr. Griffin thinks, well, well, we've gotten this far and the market's proved resilient. That means it's off to the races from here. As I say this, the Dow is, you know, near 400 points to the upside at the highs of the day because, you know, he, he still looks at this market and it makes him a little uneasy where we are now. Listen. I'm a bit anxious that this rally can continue. You know, obviously, one of the big drivers of the rally has been the the just frenzy over generative AI, which has powered many of the big tech stocks. I like to believe that this this rally has legs. I'm a bit anxious. We're we're sort of in the seventh or eighth inning of this rally. All right. So he points to some you know froth, as he put it, in Nvidia, even though he likes it and says the management team there has just executed to a T. The other issue he talked about was the prospect of higher real yields. Given where the deficit is, the supply of treasuries coming on the market as a result of that, this overwhelming supply, who the buyers might be, and the fact that it really causes a push higher in yields, that's certainly on his radar and others that I've spoken to recently as well. Absolutely. I don't disagree with that. And the market has been anxious since November of 2021 when Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell indicated that monetary policy was going to normalize and certainly it intensified through the better part of 2022. But you asked before the reasonings why the market has been so resilient. I think you have to focus on the what because the what is what's going to be so critical as we move into the fourth quarter. And the what to me is that absolutely this bull market has legs and quite candidly Understanding what I understand about the composition of this rally, we know full well the overwhelming majority 
of money managers who are behind the daily price movements are underperforming. And if, in fact, over the next several weeks, there's not the injection of bearish bearish conditions that will defeat this bullish trend, this market through the fourth quarter is going to go significantly higher. Well, Gabrielle, I mean, it, uh, that will happen. It, it, you know, we think that will happen as long as earnings mm-hmm. don't disappoint us, mm-hmm. right? Because we, we've gone from, what, three quarters in a row of negative earnings growth. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be the quarter where we start ticking up, and then the fourth quarter is even better. And then we start thinking towards 24 when it's really start to, starting to improve. Headwinds, oil prices. Mm-hmm. Watching that a lot, highest level of the year, right? We're above 90 bucks. Let's show oil because I think that's where we are. So how, how should we put all of that into perspective as well? I think what gave us a lot of comfort was the second quarter earnings season was negative, but that was largely almost entirely due to energy and materials on a year-over-year basis. Um, if you subtract energy and materials, ener- uh, earnings actually grew in the second quarter. So I think that was a bit of a relief to say that, look, regardless of what happens with the macro economy, the earnings recession seems to be behind us. And it seems to have been so much milder than we had expected. Remember, we used to talk about the possibility of an earnings contraction of 15, 20 percent. Seems like it was only 4 percent. So companies being much better able to manage their margins um, and uh, the top line Mm -hmm. not declining as much as expected. But of course, it will come back to earnings. I think the real rates discussion is also a bit nuanced in the sense of real rates are 200 basis points right now. I think there is some skepticism that's actually the new reality. It seems to us that something closer to 50 to 100 basis points is more realistic. Things haven't changed that much. To, uh, next week's uh, Fed meeting will be key to watch in terms of their assessment yeah, of this. No, no doubt about that. Let's finish with tech, Joe. Arm, IPO, so far so good. Right. At least uh, at least it seems to be uh, that way as we watch that stock up 14 percent as it, you know, prices at 51 gets out of the gates a little north of 56. And here you go um, where it is now. you got Adobe in overtime tonight as well. You own that stock. We do. Oracle. Not good. Not so good. Right. So what do we take from that? What do we look at with ARM as you look for Adobe after? It doesn't seem like one single technology company and a negative price reaction or poor earnings can defeat this bullish trend. Um, In the instance of ARM, uh, I always believed that this was priced incredibly well. The demand you knew was going to be strong on the first day, given the small float. And this is a real company with real earnings and participation in AI. Now, it is richly valued. And that's one of the reasons why I won't buy the stock, because I could just go buy Broadcom, and I already own NVIDIA. Um, As far as valuation, like, uh, what is it? Valuation is close to 100 times. Um, In in the case of of Adobe, this is a company that is in the sweet spot right now. Is the expectation going into earnings very high? Yes, I acknowledge that. It is. But traffic, web traffic has been strong. Firefly is going to be a positive contributor. And it's been a stock that has come back just like the rest of the technology with remarkable resiliency. All right. I appreciate the conversation uh, very much. Gabriella, thank you. Uh, Joe Turnover, thanks to you as well. Meantime, the UAW strike looming this evening. The contract talks nearing that deadline. Phil Lebeau is here now with the GM North America president. Phil, take it away. Thank you, Scott. Mark Royce, president of General Motors. You just made a fourth offer earlier today to the UAW. Let's talk about this a little bit because a lot of people are saying, what is GM bringing to the table? 20% raise over the life of this contract, four and a half years, correct? That's correct. Yep. And that, that, you know, if you look at that and some of the um, spikes that happened from an inflation standpoint, you know, we're getting a lot of people um, in, into a great place here for us uh, employee-wise. 
So you've got that. Plus, for the first time, and I want you to talk about this, you are basically saying the, the facilities, the plants that we have, we're going to be, th that's through the life of this contract. We're not planning to close any of these plants. No, that's job security, and that's very important to not only our, um, our team members uh, and every employee in General Motors, but also the communities that these plants and our suppliers are in. And, you know, those, that's a big deal because um, if you, look, I've been around a while in GM, and uh, having our plants and our communities fully facilitized with a promise of two more EV investments and a third propulsion EV investment in one of our, um, our traditional ice plants, you know, we're doing that. We have vertically integrated all of that. A lot of our com competition hasn't, but we, we chose to do that, use our full footprint, and really capacitize. So it's a big deal for us. Yeah, but you've heard what Sean Fain, president of the UAW, said. Uh, it's not enough. Are they negotiating in good faith? Are you frustrated? You know, uh, these are never easy negotiations, but I tell you, we are 120% at the table uh, bargaining and negotiating. Uh, the, the, the offer that we gave today, the subcommittees are all doing that right now, and so this is a true give and take right now, so it's happening. One thing I will say, though, um, you know, July 18th, uh, the day that we got, you know, the first list of the demands um, and the, the requests um, by the UAW leadership uh, and the president, um, that was when we started. And so there were a thousand things that we've been working through until we get to, you know, the last pieces and the, the time deadline that we have tonight. So we've been doing that all the way through in a very, very, very conscientious and hard effort and result work. If the UAW goes on a strike at midnight, and we've been told it's going to be at least three of your transmission and engine plants, how quickly will that shut down final production? Well, you know, it, it, it doesn't take long. Uh, more importantly, it hurts everybody. It hurts our employees. It hurts the communities where these plants are. Our supply bases, our tier ones, our tier twos, our tier threes. And for every one of those people that are out of work at one of these facilities that we have, there's six other people in the community that are affected. So the buying power in our plants, you know, two, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people in some cases, the buying power in those communities is really large. The economy, the communities, it's all affected. That would be a very sad, sad outcome. When you've gone into some of these negotiations in these sessions, has Sean Fain been in there? And what's your take on how he's conducting himself? Uh, he has been in there, Phil. And, uh, you know, so, you know, this has all been in good faith. It has been happening. Um, but I, I, as I said, I set the record straight on when we started. And that, that was July 18th. But are you frustrated? Um, I don't know if frustrated is the right word. It, we are intensely focused on getting the agreement. And one last question, the ripple effect of this. If this is an extended strike over several weeks, how damaging is it? it it's really, um, if, if you think about, again, the communities, the employees, you know, um, the livelihoods of the families, um, of all of our employees is, is devastating. So um, this is something, we have made the investments. Um, you know, we spent $35 billion on the biggest transformation in the auto industry has ever seen. And uh, we're ready to go. The best job security is great products with great people and high quality. We've got all the ingredients. We're ready to go. And so this would really put, um, you know, a, a tremendous uh, strain on what we have already in place and what we're ready to execute. Mark Royce, president of General Motors, joining us. Guys, we are just a few hours away from the deadline. 11.59 p.m. tonight is when the contract expires. Back to you. Yeah, Phil, this isn't the only big interview you have uh, either. Uh, you've got Jim Farley, the Ford CEO, coming up in the next hour, right? Yep, yep, we will be talking with Jim. Uh, similar tenor in terms of the feelings, not only that we heard from Mark here at GM, from Ford, from Stellantis, there is an, a feeling of 
we need to get a deal done here. And is the UAW ready to negotiate? Or has the UAW already decided we're going to call a strike? That's the big question out there. Good stuff, Phil. We'll look forward to that in overtime. That's Phil LeBeau uh, on the case as that deadline looms. We'll see what happens there. Let's get a check right now on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Partsinevelos is here with that. Christina? Thank you, Scott. Well, all those shares of Etsy have underperformed this year, down about 41% versus the Nasdaq, which is up over 30%. Analysts at Wolf believe the online marketplace is underappreciated by investors. They say consumer penetration is still pretty low and should grow over the next few years as discretionary spending increases. And that's why you're seeing shares up almost 3%. AT&T shares also jumping today after the CFO said in an industry conference whoops, sorry, that the telecom company expects third quarter free cash flow of $4.5 billion to $5 billion, although this range was already expected from analysts, and yet the stock is up about almost 3% as well. Scott? Christina, we'll see you soon. Thank Thanks. you, Christina Partsinevelos. We're just getting started here. Up next, Arm Holdings officially hitting the public market today. We'll show you those shares have had a pretty good day, up above 15%, just thereabout. Maybe not the best levels, but nonetheless, a pretty good debut. Now, Corian's Amy Kong is joining me here at Post 9 with her take on that, how she's playing the IPO market as well. That's coming up next. It does bring us to our question of the day. We want to know, would you buy shares of Arm at the current valuation? We said it's about 100, 100 times. Head to at CNBC closing bell on X to vote. The results a little later on in the hour. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. Arm making its highly anticipated market debut today. Leslie Picker is here with the very latest. Leslie. Hey, Scott. Yeah, it's a seminal moment for the IPO market today. Arm is the first U.S. tech IPO of the year, the largest in two years, and one of the top five U.S. listings in the last decade. And despite its size, so far it's gone pretty smoothly, priced at the high end of the range, then gaining on day one, currently up about 15%, although there is still another 40 minutes or so to go in trading. Now, some color on the order book that I haven't yet shared, Scott. I'm told there were more than 50 investors comprising a relatively concentrated book of mutual funds, sovereign wealth funds, and fundamental hedge funds. And then, of course, there were the $735 million worth of indications from Cornerstone, strategic investors such as AMD, Apple, Google, NVIDIA, and others. Arms trading today bodes well for the other IPOs in the pipeline. You've got grocery delivery service, Instacart, marketing, marketing automation, platform Clavio and Shoemaker Birkenstock on deck. Now, as for what it does to truly pry open the IPO window, well, that remains to be seen. Maybe you want to ask me this question the same time 
next week, we may have a few more data points, Scott, but it certainly yeah. doesn't hurt things. No, 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 it doesn't. Um, we'll have to see, I mean, how things transpire. The names on the list that you just gave us, along with many others, are in the pipeline. You figure, Leslie, just waiting for the absolute right moment, whether, whether this brings it or not, is anyone's guess, correct? That's right. I mean, the unique thing about this deal is this company was founded, Arm was founded in 1990. So it's an older company. It's an established company. It was solely owned by SoftBank. It's not one of those venture capital backed companies that has been kind of waiting in the wings and, you know, not profitable and looking at total addressable market in the future. I mean, this isn't that kind of an IPO that we became accustomed to, say, in 2021 during the last peak. This one is, you know, it's it's older. It's it's not even growing. It's actually shrinking its top and bottom line, although they do have some new markets, particularly those in AI that they've been marketing to investors. Um, so, you know, you kind of take this one in a category of its own. It'll mm -hmm. be interesting to see with the deals next week that are more venture backed um, and more in that category that we're used to with tech IPOs. Yeah, maybe a better barometer there. Leslie, thank you. That's Leslie Picker covering ARM all day. Uh, for us. Let's bring in now Amy Kong of Corient for a look at how she is playing the IPO market. It's good to see you. Um, you agree that this is more of an idiosyncratic case rather than uh, a sign of a, a true thaw of, of the tech IPO market? Yeah, I think we need we do need to watch the market. Uh, this is obviously a big milestone. It's one of the largest, as we've just heard. Uh, at the end of the day, we're watching for two things. One is how it's debuted, and so far it's respectable. Not a moonshot, but it's respectable. But how sustainable is that? You know, we can recall back in 2012 when Facebook IPO'd. Um, obviously, it was uh, a, a bit of a bummer. Uh, and so, at the end of the day, when that happened, it really did put a dampening effect on the IPO market. So, are you a buyer of this? No, we are not a buyer of Arm. We've been playing AI in different ways. Yeah, why not? Valuation just simply too rich. We mentioned, you know, throughout the program today, it's about 100 times. Uh, maybe too rich for some, including yourself. Yeah, valuation is a little bit higher for us. The growth prospects of this particular company has not been as attractive, and so we've been uh, shying away from this balance sheet. Okay, so you mentioned you're playing it other ways. Is that, you know, code for we like NVIDIA the best of all in, in, in AI? We like NVIDIA, but not at these valuations. We're taking a pause on the name. There are a couple of ways to play AI from our perspective. There's the hyperscale cloud uh, vendors, which we uh, obviously own Microsoft and Amazon and Google's. Uh, there are strategic consultants like Accenture. We have and users like Adobe that just went uh, public with their um, Firefly pricing, and that's uh, an interesting play for us as well. So there are a couple of ways that we're playing this AI megatrend. I want to go back to the, the comment that you made about NVIDIA, maybe too rich where it currently is. The valuations actually come down over the last several months as the guidance has, has gone up and the earnings have, have been good. So that's an interesting perspective that you have that you still think it's overvalued. And I just bring it up, Ken Griffin you know, of Citadel on our network today, he likes it too, used the word frothy when describing it. Just expand on that. As I mentioned, the valuations come down a lot and you still think that it's too, you know, too, too pricey. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a little bit of part art, part science. So from a valuation standpoint, obviously the price to earnings and other metrics that we're looking at is on the higher end when you compare it to the broader market or even to the other FANG stocks. Uh, fundamentally, we're also seeing a little bit of, um, to your point, froth in terms of just momentum building up. Um, a lot of expectations in terms of what they expect from a revenue standpoint. Yes, they have fulfilled uh, their revenue guidance for the past quarter, but that's one quarter of a data point. We want to obviously see a longer term trend. Yeah, you're looking at NVIDIA the PE 109. Of course, the forward PE is a little bit of a different story. What about mega cap valuation overall? How should we view that in the here and now as really as a group, they've come in a little bit? 
Yes, we've actually been a little bit relieved in terms of seeing the, the sell-off, if you would, back in August and now into September. Uh, going into this tech rally, of course, it's a welcome sign after a terrible 2022. But at the end of the day, we are not adding new money into the markets just yet because, again, from, let's say, a price-to-earnings uh, perspective, it's a little bit on the higher end relative to the market, relative to historical averages as well. So how are you viewing the market overall? We've mentioned at the very top of the program this, you know, really unique and incredible resiliency in most cases that the market has shown. Enough that, you know, Griffin himself is surprised by it. I think many are. The data continues to be conflicting, and I agree with you. Um, on the one hand, you've got leading indicators that suggest that the market, uh, rather the economy, should be in a recession already. But at the same time, the consumer has held up quite nicely. And so we are not yet uh, in the camp of saying a recession is out of the cards. And so we're playing it rather conservatively, if you would. Uh, we do have uh, fuller positions in tech, but we've been cutting back a little bit just in light of valuation. Where have you been going elsewhere then if you're, if you're moving away from tech? Do you, do you believe in catch-up trades of things like energy or sectors that just hadn't performed all that well this year? Yeah, we're looking at energy as a, as a sector and perhaps may nibble at that. But at the end of the day, we're really staying with companies that can benefit from shorter and longer term trends. Uh, longer term, we've talked about AI, but shorter term could be something like what's going to benefit in a higher interest rate environment. Uh, private lending is one area that we've liked a lot, and we'll stick with that. Valuations there are, are certainly less... Uh, less <laughs> I know the, no, I, the noise can be a little distracting. No worries. We forgive you. But the valuations I'm there turning are up the volume as we speak. But the valuations with private lenders, per, for example, plus the dividend yields, uh, are a little bit more attractive to us. Yeah. You think the Fed's done? We're not, we're not sure yet. Obviously, you've got data like CPI suggesting that they probably could raise again. I think that's a toss-up now. September's probably a pause from our perspective. All right, we'll leave it there. Amy, I appreciate you being here very much. Thanks, that's Dad. Amy Kong joining us here at Post 9. Up next, the case for caution. Treasury partners Rich Saperstein. He's been cautious on this market. Now he is raising the red flag again on some big market headwinds that could impact your money. He explains after the break. And do not forget, please register for CNBC's Delivering Alpha Conference. I'll be there with some can't-miss interviews, including sit-down with Pershing Square's Bill Ackman. That's on September 28th in New York City. QR code's on the screen. Get your tickets. Closing bell. Right back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Welcome back to Closing Bell. Major average is rallying into the close today with the S&P 500 roughly 2% from a 52-week high. That's all. However... Our next guest is staying cautious and thinks the market's overly optimistic on the road ahead. Let's bring in Treasury Partner CIO Rich Saperstein back with me at Post 9. Well, some more things change, the more they stay the same. I guess That's so. what I think of when I see you <laughs> and we read intros like that. Um, you're still cautious on a market that's proven, as we said at the outset, to be pretty darn resilient. Yeah, well, the, at the peak of our cautiousness, we trimmed by 10%. And we kept all of our large tech holdings. And uh, we now are back at full allocations with the market appreciation. But we're able to use that capital to redeploy into uh, 4% tax-free muni bonds, which is uh, an outstanding opportunity for our clients. So you still think that 
opportunities outside of equities provide the best risk reward for you and your clients? Yeah, at this time, we think there's great opportunity in the bond market, which was uninvestable for roughly 15 years. And clients that had large equity positions that built up over the years, it's time to trim them and reallocate into other alternatives. What about this notion that Ken Griffin posed at the very top? You know, surprise somewhat, you could tell by the the level of resiliency that this market has put forward, even in the face of all of these headwinds that people like you look at and say, gosh, I, I don't want to be overly exposed to equities, yet here we are. Super impressed with the resiliency in the economy because of a couple of reasons. One, labor hoarding. Uh, two, you've got the excess savings post-COVID that's being burned off by consumers. Three, you had the suppression of the student loan repayments. And a lot of that's reversing right now. So we're going to have QT added to that mix. And you've got a, a, a situation where the bite of Fed tightening still has to take place. So, I mean, what, at what point do you, you change your, your view? Uh, you know, earnings expectations are, are up. If that remains the case, that they, you know, earnings meet the moment mm -hmm. and meet the expectations, and inflation, though sticky in certain areas, particularly related to services, continues to come down. What is it out there that, that causes somebody like you who to change your view? Okay, so right now the market's pricing in a, let's call it a, a bullish slowdown, where it's tepid slowdown in economic activity. A soft landing. A soft landing. Plus declining inflation, then a Fed that cuts, then next year an AI-fueled uh, rise in the equity markets. And I just don't think the pieces are going to fall into place like that. In which part? I mean... That all, that all doesn't seem like so far-fetched at this point. Well, let's look at the numbers. So the S&P generated uh, $96 in earnings in the first two quarters. The estimate for this year is $222. So we need to have uh, $126 in earnings in the next two quarters, 12% 12, 12 sequential growth. Now, I don't see that happening. Then in 24, we need another 12% to get to 248. So I think the market's pricing in uh, excessive earnings growth relative to where, uh, you know, they're going to come in. Okay, so you, you think the market's overvalued. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, it's hard to talk about an overvalued market because tech has had a profound impact. Specifically, a decade ago, Apple and Microsoft were roughly 5.5% of the index. Today, 13.7%. So that's driven the average multiples higher. That's right. So I don't really look at the multiple. I'm looking at the economic outlook. And what I really have the opportunity to do is to invest past the Fed tightening, all this nonsense about, you know, is inflation coming down or not? There's a wide range of asset classes I could choose from. And that's what we're doing. I know, but I, I, I sort of ask you that as I'm thinking about your, your allocation to, you said you didn't reduce any of your holdings in, in mega cap. So no. you, you have a, a broadly negative view of the market, but in some respects, you're justifying what some would call inflated valuations of mega cap. Okay, so mega cap has great benefits of recurring revenues, a large moat around their business, and take a look at Google. Roughly 90 billion in revenues in operating cash flow, 30 billion a year in uh, CapEx and R&D. That's not on the balance sheet. So for five years, there's over $100 billion in R&D that's been spent that we have yet to see the benefit of. So I think these stocks are still very attractive. They're the ones that we own, Apple, Microsoft, and Google, and that they're going to probably go higher over time. 
Now, we also are along a lot of oil stocks. We think oil is a great sector to be in right now and have been all year. And you have no desire to increase your weightings in, in I mean, what weighting does tech have right now in terms of your, your investments? Uh, probably double what we should be. Well, I don't know. It's not, you just made the most bullish case I can think of for somebody who's negative the overall market. Well, not necessarily negative. I would say cautious. Cautious, okay. negative. But, I mean, you've, you talked but, up muni bonds as we started right. out. So I'll tell you what. If we were negative, we wouldn't have a full allocation in equities. We're cautious. Uh, we trimmed 10% at the peak of our caution. And keep in mind, for our clients, the return to the capital is more important than the return on the capital. So we get to choose where we're going. We don't have to swing at every pitch. What do you make of what Griffin said, too, which I, you know, I've been playing a bunch today because I think it's interesting, and he's not the only one talking about the possibility of real yields really you know, spiking higher because of where the deficit is, the amount of issuance coming on the market, too much supply than the market can bear if the buyers aren't there to soak it all up. Yeah. Look, that's a really good point because there's two factors here as we evaluate it. One is higher rates lead to a slowdown, ultimately lower interest rates. That is conflicted with the increased supply that the Treasury has to issue to fund this $1.6 trillion deficit. So that is in conflict. But in, in the end, we're still buying longer term bonds. We think in the long run, uh, the market will appreciate the bonds will appreciate in the slowing economy. What's the most recent stock you bought? Does something jump out to you that that you can, uh, you can let us know? Yeah, so we've added to uh, Chevron, uh, Oxy, Home Depot. Uh, we're looking at adding to Rockwell right now. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of names we've been adding to within our existing portfolio. So you mentioned energy, obviously, but why Depot? That, that's interesting to me. Right, so that's an interesting environment where home ownership right now is kind of frozen. If you have a 3% mortgage, you're not moving. And so you're going to do home improvements. So uh, we think it's an inter interesting space to be in right now, given the constriction in the housing market. Interesting stuff. Um, enjoyed it, as always. Likewise. That's Rich Saperstein uh, joining us. Right here, Treasury Partners, he's the Chief Investment Officer. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina Parsonevelos is back with that. Christina. Well, aging boomers means cruises will be the it thing to do. Plus, Visa wants to change its chair structure and investors don't like it. I'll explain next. We're about 15 minutes away from the closing bell. Let's get back now to Christina Parsonevelos with the stock she's watching. Christina. Well, let's talk about Visa shares falling lower after announcing plans to change its share structure. Class A shares are held by the public. B shares held by U.S. banks. C shares held by foreign banks. Visa wants to allow the U.S. banks to exchange some of their Class B shares, which don't trade publicly, into Class A shares, which means more Class A, more dilution. That's why you're seeing shares down over 2%. Americans are still itching to travel, and analysts at Redburn believe the cruise lines stand to benefit from strong demand. They upgraded Norwegian and Carnival to buy while keeping Royal Caribbean at neutral. Age is a factor, though, for their decision. The average cruise guest is over 50 years old, and with the over 65 population set to grow 2% per year until the end of the decade, there's a potential jump in demand. Right, Scott? You should know. Sure. Christina, thanks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Christina Partsinevelis. All right. 
as we head out. Let's show you arm holdings. Uh, highs of the session up near 20%. So we'll watch that over the final stretch here. Got about 15 minutes to go. By the way, don't forget, it's your last chance to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked, would you buy shares of Arm at the current valuation? Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on X. The results after this break. The results of our question of the day. We asked, would you buy shares of Arm at the current valuation of about, well, PE about 100? Majority of you said nope. Almost 85% in fact. Thanks for voting. After the break, your earnings set up. Adobe and Lennar both reporting in just a few moments in overtime. We run you through the key themes and metrics to watch. That and much more when we take you inside. Where else? The Market Zone. Well, here we are. We're in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is here to break down the crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Diana Olek on Lennar earnings out in overtime today. Also, we'll dig into whether Adobe could see a sell-off like Oracle with it reports within the hour. Mike, I'll turn to you. Uh, we're off the highs of the day, but we've got a good, broad day going. Yes. Uh Pretty uh, reassuring after a couple of wobbly ones. I, I think that you know, no no part of the August and September choppiness has gotten any deeper, nastier than routine. Uh, but it has gotten a little bit fatigued uh, along the way. So right now, S and P 500 around 4,500, making a run at the September 1st closing high. I mean, this is where we're at. We're kind of just still knocking around the same zone. Um, the ECB raising today and then immediately the markets turn to, well, they're certainly done. And in fact, let's price in cuts. I think that just reinforces the idea that all the data this week, everything that happened, doesn't really disturb the idea of peak central bank, the U.S. economy, yeah, it's, it's decelerating, but it's not really falling apart. The earnings picture looks okay. Yeah, it's a top-heavy earnings picture. NASDAQ 100 uh, estimates up a lot. Uh, in the last month, the rest of the market, not so much. That reflects how the market's been acting. Well, I mean, you hear, you, you know, you hear the case from those who are cautious, if not bearish. You know, Rich Saperstein yeah. makes the case. Earnings are too optimistic. There are others who say, yeah, well, the CPI and PPI just underscore the point that inflation's sticky. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's come down a lot yes. and quickly, but then you're going to get a stall. There's no doubt that you haven't really proven anything and not achieved uh, anything that, that's guaranteed. But... The S&P is exactly where it was two years ago. Earnings are up 10%. Same price, 10% higher earnings. Nominal GDP still going 5 plus percent. Whether, whatever you think about inflation, it's still going to be 3 plus, And real growth is 2%. Um, I don't think you have to really uh, kind of twist yourself up to explain why we're trading right here. And meanwhile, the, um, the S&P equal weight is just dead flat since January. I mean, we're talking about eight months of nothing. So it's not as if the market is somehow looking at this unrealistic rosy picture and pricing in. It's just kind of hanging in there because the backdrop is not that hostile just okay. yet. I feel on, that, on that point, just quickly before I get to Diana Saperstein again, I, it's fascinating to me that a guy can be that cautious on the market, but still, hey, he's, he's in. He's in sure. more than he wants to be on, on the mega caps. Right. Uh, the market itself has essentially raised, it, you know, if you have any equities, it's it sort of kept you uh, increasing your exposure. And then you can figure out what to do with it. I think that bonds at these yields are, you know, essentially allowing you to take equity risk more than you were in the past because you're getting 5% carry on the cash. Yeah. All right. Diana Olick, what can we expect from Lennar in overtime? 
Well, Scott, Lenard's the second largest home builder in the nation, and it, like the other builders, has been benefiting from the severe lack of supply on the existing home side. So the expectation is for another strong report. Now, last month, Berkshire Hathaway reported new positions in Lenar and two other big builders investing $800 million. Lenar's stock is up about 60% in the last 12 months. Demand for housing appears to be strong. Applications for a mortgage to buy a newly built home in August were up 20% year over year, according to the NBA. In last quarter's report, Q2, Lenar Chairman Stuart Miller said buyers were getting used to the new normal in mortgage rates. But rates in Q2 were well below 7%, even approaching 6 at one point. Then they shot up over 7% in June. So we'll see how much that hit demand in Q3 and potential sellers for Lenar's. All right, we'll Scott. look forward to your Yep, Diana, thank you. We'll look forward to your reporting in overtime, of course, when Lennar hits the tape. And speaking of hitting the tape, Adobe also reporting after the bell, days after fellow software company Oracle cratered on disappointing guidance. What about now? Um, is this a risk? We watch chips sort of, you know, some of the chips started to pull back. Oracle out of software starts to pull back a yeah. little bit. Now we're wondering what's going to happen with uh, Adobe. Yeah, obviously could be some risk. Adobe has outperformed you know, on a year-to-date basis. It really was an ultra favorite of the software kind of mini bubble back in 2021, and it got just destroyed off of that. And now you about, you know, about doubled off the low. So it's obviously had a decent run. But looking in terms of its valuation, something like a free cash flow yield, I was just looking at it, it's like 3.5% free cash flow yield. It, that has been essentially just a rock steady level it's more or less stuck to over the last 10 years, with the exception of 2021 when it got too expensive, and then last year when it got a little bit cheaper. So I don't think people are super offsides about it, but what Adobe management says about any of the macro stuff, what are clients doing in terms of budgeting, people have been very sensitive to any signals around that uh, in this uh, earnings season. And obviously the AI story, it's like, is it persuasive? How are you getting paid for it? Uh, is it going to be a big enough part of the business that you really want to capitalize the uh, the company around that? Which reminds you, you'll hear from uh, from the CEO of Adobe as well uh, in overtime. So uh, don't miss that after the numbers hit the tape. We'll, we'll look forward to that. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you got options uh, expiration tomorrow? Yeah. We got the quarterly options expiration. You want to explain tomorrow. why that can be a little volatile? You know, sometimes what it means is that it, it just has this cluster of exposures around certain index levels. Um, and sometimes it kind of traps the market instead of being more volatile leading up to it. And then once you get through the expiration, sometimes the market can trade a little bit looser. I would also at least point out for the you know basic disclosure sake that a lot of work about the week after the September options expiration has a history of being pretty weak. Everyone Everyone knows late September has historically been the scene of a lot of accidents. Doesn't mean it has to be. Doesn't mean it is every year when the market's up uh, on a year-to-date basis as it is today. Maybe the, the risk is lower. What I find fascinating, though, is volatility index clicking below 13 today. Wow. You know, you've almost round trip to the multi-year lows you had before the pandemic, and it's because the index itself has been trapped. We were at 4,500 two months ago. We're at 4,500 right now. It's been a long time, actually, since a 5% pullback from a high on a relative basis. So it seems as if uh, the market is priced in, maybe not much of anything happening. And I guess you have to ask yourself, does that represent a little bit of near-term tactical risk if, in fact, people have not necessarily uh, got their guard up as much? 
I guess that being said, I, you know, yesterday's put call ratio was really high. Nobody seems to think the market's going to race away from them. So it's almost like it's lulled everybody into this, I guess we're stuck in the range yeah. type of an attitude. Let's uh, touch on ARM. Uh, we, we should yeah. uh, in the two minutes. You heard the sound effect for the two-minute warning there. Uh, biggest IPO of the year, obviously highly anticipated. We can show you a chart here as we look at ARM in this final stretch, 90 seconds or so. So uh, right now it's at the highs of the session, yeah. up about 25%. So you've had some buyers come in right at the end here. There's been some suggestion today it's more idiosyncratic than anything in terms of a tell yeah. on the state of the thaw, so to speak, in, in IPOs. I would say in terms of ARM's specific business, it is a bit of a special case. So it's not as if, you know, it's enthusiasm over, you know, the chip making process broadly or other design companies. That said, I think the way it's priced and traded is probably the way you would have hoped to have seen it go. Meaning you get a little, you get some upside. 24% is a pretty good run, but also there's a 10% float. So there's, you know, it's really not that much stock out there. And this is right around where, remember, SoftBank valued it when it kind of transferred it out of the vision fund. So it seems like everyone should be happy with this, even if it's not really valued at this price price, you know, all that attractively, uh, unless you have some great expectations of what's going to happen on the earnings side. So I think it's a, a marker of relative health for the overall capital markets, even if it's not, I mean, it doesn't mean anybody can just sort of plug in whatever valuation they want and get out the door, because I think that there was some care taken in pricing it lower than they could have which is uh, probably prudent given where the market's been. Yeah, speaking of, I mean, one of the underwriters, the lead underwriter, Goldman having a good day, too. So look at the second derivative place, too, having a pretty good day off of Arms debut. Does it for us? From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.